As we continue our series in the Songs of Ascent, uh, we've walked through now Psalm 120 through this morning now 124. And through it, we are seeing just some very, very basic ideas of what it means to follow Christ today, what it means to journey toward Christ in our world today. Uh, We've seen from the beginning that that the theme of repentance, the, the idea that we must turn away from the life we are leading on our own, we must turn away from our sin, from our rebellion against God. But also in Psalm 121, the idea of providence, that God is in control of all things and we must trust in his control and his provision and his care. We see in Psalm 122, one of the most basic things a Christian does, a follower of God does, is worship, to to give our lives over to glorifying the name of God. As we do that, whether it's in song or whether it's in prayer or whether it's in the reading and the study and the preaching of the word of God, uh, whatever it may be there, we worship God. And we've also seen in Psalm 123 that we are to be people of service, that we have to serve God above all else. And in serving God, we have to go out and serve others who are made in God's image. But Psalm 123 ends a little negatively. It says verse 3 and 4, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. And so We hope, we pray that this psalm this morning, 124, gives us a little bit more hope than that. One thing I think that we really need to focus in on is Psalm 124 does an amazing thing. You see, because the Bible is one unified story that all points to Jesus. From the very beginning, it's already telling the story of Jesus, the one who made all things. It was through him that all things were created. All the way, even to Genesis 3, saying there there is a curse for the sin of the world, but even there, God promises that one is coming, an offspring, a seed is coming, who will crush the serpent's head, the great deceiver's head, but that serpent will bruise his heel. From the very beginning, the Bible is about Jesus. And so, as we look at Psalm 124, we're seeing an amazing thing happen, because this is a song of David, it says. And, and, and Derek Kidner in his commentary believes that this psalm is about the events of 2 Samuel 5. So if, if at some point you want to go back and read through that battle and those events, uh, you can. I'm not going to focus on them too much this morning. But see, David, even in writing this psalm, is doing an amazing thing. Because he is tying what is happening in his present to the past that has come before. And he's pointing toward a future that is yet to come. In the early church, there was a guy named Irenaeus, which is a name that uh, if, you're, if you know, if you're having grandkids soon coming and you need to give some baby name suggestions, Irenaeus, really good. I hear the old names are coming back, so we might as well go all the way back to the third century. Irenaeus was a, a theologian back then, and he wrote a book that now is kind of titled On the Apostolic Preaching or On the Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. And he was trying to basically explain and expound the very basic preaching that the early church, the apostles, were doing. 
And in doing so, he really writes the story of the Bible from beginning to end, pointing about how the prophecies were fulfilled in Christ, how all these events pointed to Christ. It's a beautiful book, and it's actually very simple to read. It would be worth reading, even though it's so old. And it still is. I've read it multiple times. I love it. But in that book, he talks about a concept in theology, and he, he kind of coins a term for it, which is recapitulation. So if you ever heard the word of recapitulate, it's kind of like recapture, retell, rehearse. And he's talking about how the Bible, because it's this one big story that's all pointing to Jesus throughout the Bible, the events are recapitulating or rehearsing or retelling events that have already come. A classic example in my mind of this is, is simply this. You have the Exodus, right? The, the, the Jewish people were in slavery in Egypt, and they were freed by the work of God, you know, through the plagues and through the walk, walking through the sea and all those things. In Isaiah, Isaiah recapitulates that story. He retells it. He says, this exodus has happened, and right now we are facing the, the threat of an exile, but here in the future, we are awaiting a greater exodus that is going to free all people from all their issues, Right? And so that's an example of taking an old thing that happened in the Bible, retelling it for today, and then pointing to a future in which it'll come again. Well, the reason I say all of this is because on Psalm 124, David, in his present circumstances, is using old, old stories to tell of what's happening now and point to an even greater story yet to come, the fulfillment of all of this. So it begins in verse 1 by saying, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side... Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. The Lord helps his people. The Lord is on their side. The Lord, it says, Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. This connection between the Lord being on the side and helping his people Israel is a great theme throughout the Bible. You know, we see Israel very officially made in Genesis chapter 35. And if, if you would like to, uh, feel free to turn there this morning. Genesis 35, it's an, easy, it's an easy passage to find because it's the first book of the Bible. So just go all the way to the front. If you've gone to the table of contents, you've gone too far. Go to Genesis chapter 35, just flip through, and then you can find verse 10 through 12. We're just going to read these briefly. This is God speaking to Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Verse 10, chapter 35, verse 10 of Genesis. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So from, from very early on, God is calling a people to be his own. He promises in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, you know that offspring, that seed that was promised in chapter 3? Yeah, that's coming through your family. Go, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then as time goes on, it's Isaac, not Ishmael, who is the one who will carry forth this promise. And now here, clarified, it's not Esau, but it's Jacob. God choosing one of the sons, again, to follow through. That, that Christ, 
the Messiah, the, the representative of all Israel, the one who will come to redeem his people is being promised through Jacob and Jacob being renamed Israel. He will be a great nation and from him he will have 12 sons who will be the tribes of Israel. But in this passage this morning, when it uses the word Israel, yes, it is referring to the nation that came before. But it's also representing in the future God's chosen people that are coming, but they will not be defined by being ethnically from Israel. They will not be defined by simply being born of a certain parent. They will be defined by the fact that they are God's people. And that is now defined by Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, by the way, but if you want to write down Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 24, you can look later. But Paul is talking about, and you may have heard this passage before, how Israel and the Gentiles are being grafted in together. You can almost picture it like this. Israel is this great tree, this great tree that was planted and had grown and had, had expanded, but it had been chopped down. And then, in Romans, Paul says, the branches from that tree, some of them have been grafted in. Now, if you know anything about agriculture, you know what that means. is taking one old tree and taking branches or, or, or pieces from another tree and grafting them, bringing them in so that they actually form into one tree together. This is how crossbreeding happens. This is how all this stuff happens in agriculture. But here, Paul is using it as a metaphor for what God is doing in Christ. Because the story so far has been God's chosen people are Israel. But here he says, the tree has been chopped down. All that's left is this stump. The stump of Jesse, as Isaiah prophesies, which is Christ. And in this stump, some of the branches from that tree are being grafted back in. This is true, Israel, Paul says. But then he makes clear there are branches from some other trees that are being grafted in as well. So that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, there are those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not saying that their ethnicity is wiped away. It's just simply saying that in Christ, they do not, they are not a part of the salvation plan of God in the sense of being just for these people. It's for all people now. It has gone to all tribes, all tongues, all nations. So the Lord helps his people, and his people are no longer defined simply by who their parents are, what their birth and lineage looks like. They are defined by those who are born again, raised to new life with a living hope. Those who have turned away from a life of sin and given up their old selves and turned toward a life in Christ, such that the foundation of that tree is Christ himself and all peoples, all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all tongues can be brought together here. The Lord helps his people. And, and if it was anyone else other than the Lord, if it was anyone else, it wouldn't be possible. Verse says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, then they would have been led to utter destruction. That they didn't need some great human savior, some mere human leading them. They didn't need some really charismatic preacher. They didn't need some really smart and savvy CEO. 
And you know what? They didn't even need all these other lesser gods. I'm sure David, writing at this time, was aware that there were people among him, people in the surrounding land and even within his own nation that were worshiping false gods. And he is writing now, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, we would have been utterly destroyed. If our help had not come from the Lord, the one true living God, known as Yahweh to his people, revealed to us now in Jesus Christ, if it had not been that Lord, we would have been utterly helpless. So if the Lord helps his people, then the only question for us to ask ourselves this morning, are we part of his people? And it's not based on who your parents are. God doesn't have grandchildren. God has children. It's not based on who your parents are and whether they were Christian or whether your grandparents were Christian or or their parents were Christian. It's not based on where you live. It's not based on a location. If you live in the South, you're not more saved than anybody else anywhere else. It's not based on how much money you have or how little you have or how much prestige you have or how little you have. In James chapter 2, it says, show no partiality. It says, if someone comes into your sanctuary dressed finely and you say, come, have the best seat. Or if someone comes in poor and, and dressed poorly and you say, oh, go sit over there. We are sinning. Who are God's people? It's those people who have believed in Jesus Christ. It is those people who it can be said, we are in Christ. And that has no race, that has no color, that has no no thing of this world that can tie it down. It's simply those who are a part of God's people because of the work of Jesus Christ. So my question for you this morning, just to think for yourself, and this is the most important question you have to ask yourself, am I one of those people? Have I truly turned away from a life of sin, and turn toward Jesus Christ with trust, with hope, with the fullness of grace and faith. And if you are one of God's people, then you'll be happy to know that not only does the Lord help you, but the Lord helps against other people in your life, against your enemies. Look at verse 2 at the end. It says, when people rose up against us, Then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. But but the message is that that didn't happen. That's what the psalmist is writing. These things didn't happen because the Lord was on our side. The Lord was our help. That word people there in verse 2, it's the, the Hebrew Adam, or you might think of Adam in Genesis chapter 2. We hear of Adam and Eve, Adam meaning Man, not necessarily in a gendered way, but in a humankind, humanity kind of way. So man. It says when man rose up against us. It it almost brings to your mind when it says that God from the dust of the earth formed Adam and breathed life into him. Right? Being rose up, risen. Here it says when people rose up against us. The, the, The reality is in Romans... Paul talks about this as well. I'm getting to a lot of Romans today. Romans is really helpful for putting all the dots together in our Bibles. It's also extremely confusing, so there we are. So this may be an extremely confusing sermon. But in Romans, Paul talks about this, and he says, In Adam all die. In Adam all die. Why? Because in Adam, 
The world has fallen from God. And Romans 6.23, there you go, Levi, I'm mentioning it again. For the wages of sin is death. The results, the paycheck, the interest that you earn on sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul is trying to show us is that sin and death have entered through Adam. But through Christ, life in abundance and freedom from sin has come. And so we get very clearly that Adam, our first father, the first man, has brought sin into this world by his choices. And therefore, when we are born, although we were made in the image of God, we are also corrupted. We are also a little bit broken. If as images of God we are meant to reflect God's glory in this world, then as those born today, we are like broken mirrors, imperfectly reflecting God in this world. And Christ has come as one who perfectly represents God to free us from that and to heal that and to fix it. So the Lord helps against people. These people were coming. We see throughout the history of Israel, God is protecting them. He protects them from the Egyptians. He protects them from the Canaanites. He protects them from the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all these peoples from all over. God is protecting them, continually saving them and and preserving them and delivering them. And I guess my question this morning for you to think through is, do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord helps his people against their enemies? Do you believe that in your life today, if there is someone opposing you because of your identity with God, your proclaiming that you are a child of God, do you really believe that God will help you in those circumstances? Because we, we need to make sure we are part of God's people, that we show the signs of repentance. But we also need to truly believe, if we're going to get through this life, we have to believe that God is on our side. We have to believe that our help comes from the Lord. We have to believe that when things seem to go wrong in our life, well, that's exactly how God is making them right. I, I always think of Genesis. At the end of Genesis, Joseph says to his brothers, What you intended for evil, God intended for good. So who intended it? God and Joseph's brothers. You know, we like to make it all God or all Joseph's brothers. But the reality is, he's saying what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so when evil comes our way, we either have to believe that God is going to destroy it. That he's going to preserve us, or we have to recognize that when he doesn't, it is still for the good. It is still something that is coming about for the greater purposes of God. And in these circumstances, oftentimes, the Lord helps a remnant. Now, if you've not heard that word before, it's a word sometimes used in Scripture, a remnant, referring to a smaller group, a remaining group of a larger group. And this happens in the Bible a lot, actually where God uh, calls a people, and then they, he says, go multiply, and they kind of expand out, and then something devi- uh, decisive happens, either God's wrath or his judgment or, or circumstances, in which then that group is winnowed down to a very small remainder. And then again, it kind of happens again, expand out, and, expand, and, and that happens over and over again, until you get to Christ. So a remnant. Look at verses 4 through 5 real quick. It says, 
Then the flood would have swept us away. This is if God was not on our side. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. You know, we, we often think of water as a good thing in the church. We think of, you know, Jesus is, you know, the living water that will never grow thirsty. But, but when you go and read the Old Testament, many times water is bad. In the ancient world, water and the ocean was bad, and I can identify with that. I was born in the middle of Oklahoma. I'm not a big fan of the ocean. My least favorite part of flying uh, when I'm going internationally is the like hours you spend, where nowadays you can watch on your screen as the, the plane is over just the ocean. And I just think this is the worst thing that I could possibly endure, because if this thing goes down, I'm not surviving out there, and I'm going to hate it, and it'll be the worst. I remember walking on the beach when I was um, in Scotland, and I had a friend who he had grown up near the ocean and I had grown up far away from it. We were walking on the beach and he said, oh, I'm just so glad I'm, I'm so close to the ocean because I, I, get, I feel so claustrophobic if I can't see it. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like, you're not a fish. Like, what, what do you mean claustrophobic? When I see the ocean, I'm like, that's a whole side that I can't go to. I've got, I've got all that way I can go, but that's blocking me off. And he's like, no, no, no. Like, Growing up near the ocean, like, I can just hop in a boat and, and, and go. And, of course, I'm thinking, well, what happens if you don't have a boat? But we didn't get into that when we had that conversation. But in the ancient world, they, would, they kind of agreed with me more, even if they lived near the ocean. They saw the ocean as representing chaos. In a lot of their ancient creation myths, water represented chaos. It's one of those things in Genesis chapter 1, in our creation story, we, we get a picture of God controlling the water, and the water is not an opposing force to God. He creates it. And in creating and working his creation, you know, he takes the water and he separates it from the land. God is in control of the chaos. Is a big point that that story is trying to tell us. But not only did it represent chaos, it represented death. Maybe you've watched um, some old Viking movies or TV shows or a History Channel thing on Vikings. You know, they would talk about you know, when you, when you died on the ocean and, they would, and your body would be taken to the underworld in the sea. The sea represented the abyss, the underworld, the place of the dead. And it also represents in Scripture God's judgment and wrath. I, I mean, you see early in Genesis, right? You see the story of Noah and the ark. This is the best children's story you could ever tell someone, right? All the little animals get on the boat. You've seen the pictures, the two lions and the two giraffes and the two elephants. They're all happy getting on the boat, and there's going to be a rainbow coming. I mean, we forget about the part where the, you know, the flood kills a bunch of people. We don't tell the kids about that so much. We don't emphasize that. So great children's story, right, if you just leave out all the parts that aren't. But in that story, in that story, what's happening is God, though the world is wicked and apart from him, he is saving a remnant, Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. He is saving a remnant, delivering them from the, the judgment that he might continue his work in this world through them. And continually God does this through his people. And so, again, we get echoes of, of creation. We get echoes of, of God's faithfulness in this passage. Looking at Romans 11 again, you see everything comes back to Romans this morning. And no, I wasn't reading it just this week, but Romans eleven five six 5, 6 says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. 
there is a remnant. This is right before Paul talks about all that grafting in stuff I mentioned before. Paul is saying that there is a remnant from Israel. And actually that remnant isn't just a group of people. In this instance, that remnant is Jesus Christ himself. He is the representative of Israel. In scripture we see he is the true and better Israel. What Israel failed to do, he succeeded. And so Jesus is the remnant on which the foundation of being fruitful and multiplying in this world begins again. So Jesus is at the center of it so that we can then build and expand a foundation upon him, not on, not on just a mere family or a group of people, but on Jesus Christ himself. In the same way the floods wash, would have washed over us and taken us, safe in the ark of God that is Jesus, safe in that ark, safe in that ship, we survive, we thrive, we begin anew. You know, this is what happens in baptism, right? We, we take someone who has said, I no longer want to be my old self. I no longer want my master to be sin. I no longer want death to be my end. And they say, I want to be buried with Christ in baptism and raised to new life. Literally going into the water, symbolizing what Jesus did for us. Jesus dying on the cross, entering the place of the dead, entering into death and chaos and all those things that the water represents and coming out raised to new life, defeating death itself. And in baptism, we just retell that story. Again, let's go back to that theological word. We recapitulate what Christ has done, what God has done in this world, what he does in the scripture. We tell that story again. And now we live... Continuing that story, watching the story of God's salvation come alive in our lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our towns, in our churches. Watching that story come to life until Christ returns. And when Christ returns, again, he will raise all to life and send some to eternal life in the arms of Christ and some to eternal death and punishment. The Lord helps a remnant. And I would be remiss to not simply add the fact that if you are a member at First Baptist Alcoa, you might feel that a little bit right now. That right now, our church at its core is a remnant of what it once was. And I don't know whether it was the judgment of God or the wrath of God or something like that that caused it, but we all know that through years and even decades, our church is now this, a much smaller church than it once was. But what always happens when God is truly making a remnant of people, he is whittling it down to make it stronger. He's whittling it down to make it more core and more, more firm. What we see in, in earlier in the Old Testament, God goes to an army. There's, there's the Israel army and there's, and there's the opposing army. And he goes to them and he says, hey, all of you who don't want to be here, go home. He tells the leader of the army, go, go tell them, all of you who don't want to be here, go home. He does that three times. So that instead of being a larger army than the opposing one, instead of being an army that's equal in size, they actually become an army that's smaller. He does this for two reasons. One, God, when he is going to do a great and mighty thing, needs the true people to show up. The ones who are truly faithful, the ones who are truly in the game, the ones who truly want to put the cards on the table and don't want to go home and do some gardening. That's the Old Testament verse. But the second thing he's trying to do 
is he's trying to stack the deck so much that when the world sees the result of that battle, they can say, the only way there was victory is because the Lord was on our side. He's trying to stack the deck so much that when the community and the neighborhood and the town see a church that is near to death come back to life, they say, that church isn't doing that because there was a charismatic guy who manipulated a bunch of people. They're not doing that because they got a bunch of money together and they just bought a bunch of staff and they just did all that they could. They are doing that because the Lord moved in that church and in that congregation. I, I was listening to a church revitalizer and replanter guy named Mark Clifton the other day. If you hang out with Raymond too long, you'll probably hear about him. But he was talking about how he had gone to a church of less than us, a church of 30. And over years, that church, because they were allowing to put everything on the table for Jesus and to build from a foundation that was only Jesus and not not everything they wanted, but just Jesus. That church ended up in the hundreds and two hundreds now, years later. He talked about just a few years ago, he went to a church with three members. This is the most impressive one to me. In a rural community, went to a church of three members. Three. Not, not 30, not 300, three. And he told them, he said, hey, you know, I work for the, the denomination. I don't need a salary. We'll, we'll come over here. Me and my wife will move here. You don't have to pay us. We know you don't have a whole lot of money. Um, but if y'all are willing to work and, and, and build a foundation on Christ and to put all the cards on the table, we'll come here. He said what was interesting was one of them had to be really convinced even after all of that. You know, they're about to get a free pastor, a church of three people, and they're still like, I don't know if we want to hire this guy. Anyway, they end up calling him. That church has over 70 people now, only three years later. Why? Because it didn't matter about the numbers. God moved there. God moved there. And you know what? The truth is, if those three people were being salt and light in their neighborhood, if those three people were seeking to make disciples. If those three people were preaching Jesus, it wouldn't matter if they stayed three people 30 years later because that would bring God glory. And the Lord helps us for his glory. In verse 6, it says, Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us his prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. It's blessed be the Lord. The Lord helps us. For his glory. He wants to bring himself glory through his churches, through his world. Although it was at its most broken place, bringing it to flourish like nothing else. I don't know if y'all are too much into flowers. Molly and I have uh, some flowers on our front porch, and I don't know what they are. But when the sun is shining, they'll open up. But when the sun goes out, they'll, they'll shrivel back in. In the dark, when God is not shining upon us, we shrivel back in and we're not that impressive. And our churches do the same thing. With God not being present to us, with his spirit not moving amongst us, we are going to be these little ugly shriveled flowers. But if God shows and shines his his grace and his favor upon us, if he shows favor to us and has mercy upon us, we'll open back up and be some of the most beautiful flowers you've ever seen. The Lord helps us, not just because he loves us, but because when he helps us and the world looks at what he has done, it brings him glory. Let's pray.